The Start On Demand. On demand. It was a tough weekend for hockey fans in this city because our beloved team, the Winnipeg Jets, got knocked out of the Stanley Cup playoffs. We'll have post-mortem discussions with both Kelly Moore and Leah Hextall. There's always a bright side, though. There's always something to look forward to, and for me, that's golf. It's finally time. We'll speak to St. Boniface Golf Club to see how their final preparations are going before their season opens later this week. Also, I needed a pair of pants for golf, so I went to Value Village over the weekend because I didn't want to spend 100 bucks on golf pants. So I found a pair, tried them on, found 35 bucks in the pocket. I kept it. Should I have kept it? Or should I feel guilty? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Loren McNabb. Greg Mackling is back Tuesday. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Easter Monday, April 22nd podcast for The Start. Well, there's no more NHL hockey to be left to be played at the but Bell there, MTS. But, but there are still... The North American Ice Hockey League Championships continue, but it just it hurts to even say it, <laughs> it Kelly. It does hurt to say it. So yeah. players are going to gather this morning, Kelly, right, for their cleaning out their lockers. It's yes. an annual tradition, but, but it came earlier, I think, than many had hoped for. Oh, most definitely. And I think that there's a lot of questions that are going to be asked this morning to not just the players, but the coaching staff, the GM's going to be available. Uh, before we get to that, we just want to play you a quick clip. The Jets, of course, lost 3-2 to St. Louis in Game 6 Saturday night. And after the game, Captain Blake Wheeler didn't really take kindly to a suggestion by one of the reporters there that the team had perhaps not played their best. In the, order, in the elimination game, you guys probably expected your best, right? Um, what, what happened? Please come on, man. I mean, like, you know, this is a tough trophy to win. And, um, you know, maybe our best just wasn't good enough today, you know, and uh, their best was, was, was pretty darn good. Um, you know, in situations like that, you look for the resolve in your group. You look for how guys fight. And um, we played to the last whistle. So, you know, that's the way I see it. So let's start with that. Did they play to the last was like I watched the game. Sure, the score was three two. They had those two goals near the end, but the first two periods, well, I wouldn't say they were playing their best at all. In fact, they looked defeated right after that first goal a few twenty seconds in. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, the Winnipeg Jets were nowhere near the same team that played in St. Louis in games three and four for sure, and. Players are always going to look at it differently, certainly than the media, and most of the times look at it differently than than a majority of the fans. Uh, and and so you know Blake Wheeler, he is well within his means to react the way that he did, and also to explain the way that he did. But uh, for my money, it, it just looked like the Winnipeg Jets had had their will to win removed from them surgically by the St. Louis Blues and it began Friday night uh, when the Blues over or th- Thursday night rather when the Blues overcame the 2 nothing uh, deficit in game 5 and wound up winning 3 to 2 and that really seemed to carry over like like they didn't it, get over that yeah if the, if the Winnipeg Jets really believe that Saturday night was a one goal game I I think when they look back on the video they might have a little bit of a different view on that because without Connor Hellebuck's heroics that game would have been over at about the 30 minute mark. Yeah, I was watching I, I think it was after the second period where one of the commentators on TV was saying the Jets are only in this game because oh, for of sure. Hellebuck. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was heroic. Uh there was no doubt about that. His team had just completely lost their way and and in in my opinion from from what I've seen of hockey over you know some 30 years or so uh, of covering the game it it just looked like St. Louis had had removed their will to be able to compete mm. that was what i saw well i after that first goal uh, i can't remember who in my family we were watching because it's easter weekend and we had some family over and someone just said oh no look at their eyes and there was something about mm-hmm. them on the bench 30 seconds into that game, not just because it was one nothing. They're just, I don't know if it's uh, yeah. like your mojo or the, your yeah, whatever it is. That, it, just, yeah. it sucked all the air out mm-hmm. of there, and it was it was done. So I want to play a clip from Paul Maurice just about what he had to say about the game, and then I want to ask you about his future, Kelly. Full of excuses. We got beat. 
I think they played as hard as they could tonight, and they didn't quit. I mean, they, like that, there's you can see it; their faces going into that third. There's not a lot, not a lot of reserve there, and, uh, and they kept pushing. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the way they handled that. So they did keep pushing. He's, yeah, he's they, right about they that. They did not quit, I, and, and to suggest otherwise would be wrong. Uh, but uh, that's why I used my words the way mm-hmm. that I did. Remove their will to win, uh, and or their belief that they could win. I guess uh, would be the way to describe it. Well, of course, fans at this time want to have all sorts of conversations about who didn't come to play, who didn't show up, who was leading, who was coaching. Mm-hmm. Should different decisions have been made? Should he have shaken things up a bit on going into that third? Was it time oh. there to make different line changes? I mean, there was all sorts of. Everybody likes to be a coach when the game's over, right? Yeah. I... I don't think I don't think any kind of a change would have made a difference with that hockey game, the way that it was being played, especially with the way St. Louis was playing it. The damage was done earlier in that series. The damage was done with the blown lead in Game 1. The damage was certainly uh, done to an even greater degree with the blown lead in Game 5. So, you know, to to suggest that uh, it came down to coaching in Game 6, I... I personally don't agree with that. So people uh, who question his future today or, or having those asks to the GM, because the GM's also going to be available to speak with, he yeah. is going to get asked, I'm sure, oh, about, okay, are we sticking with this lineup and this coaching team heading into 2019, 2020? And you should, and they will. They'll they'll stay with this coaching uh, staff. Uh, I'll be surprised if any changes get made to the coaching staff. Because, uh, A, I think uh, the first thing that the general manager is going to do is give a reasonable amount of time to let the good GMs, and Kevin Sheveldayoff is a good GM, they let the emotion subside and then they make pragmatic decisions. And uh, I, I, I do think, though, that there has to be a lot of discussion and a lot of questions asked about what happened to this team when the calendar flipped to 2019. Not because, this series, that like two months ago, three months ago. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about when the calendar flipped to 2019 and the second half of the season, this team played very inconsistently. And and so questions have to be asked, why? You know, what what was the problem? And and more importantly, how do you fix it? And, and keeping in mind, what you saw Saturday night in St. Louis is going to look dramatically different uh, in September, there are only 11 players under contract. They take up 55.6 million of the 83 million dollar projected salary cap. So, by my math, that leaves 27.5 million dollars to sign 12 players, including a couple of uh, high-profile restricted free agents like Patrick Lyonnais and Kyle Connor. So, you know, 27 into 12 is basically over two million per per player. And with the understanding of what Lyonnais and Connor are going to be uh, are going to be looking for to get re-signed, that that leaves you a lot of uh, situations where boy, you have to get a tremendous bang for your buck because you know quite conceivably there'll be no Brandon Tanev, there'll be no Ben Sherrod, there'll be no Tyler Myers, uh, Jacob Trouba has shown no signs whatsoever of wanting to sign a long-term contract. So I think you have to look at moving him, but you still only have. $27.5 million mm-hmm. to sign 12 players. So a vastly different team. And there's still a lot of hockey left to be played. You yes, know, there is. Yeah, the, absolutely. One of, the, one of the original predictions was Jets, Lightning in the final. That's obviously not going to happen. Well, so, and Sports Illustrated had Pittsburgh and Calgary getting to the final four as well. So none of their four teams are going to be there. So who's playing the best hockey, do you think? Oh, boy. Well, if you go based on what we saw, Pitt, uh, sorry, Columbus and, and the Islanders, did a pretty thorough job mm-hmm. of dismantling a couple of good teams. Uh, Colorado, right now, I would have to say of the of the teams that are in it, you'd have to look at Colorado as being the favorite. They play with speed. They're getting great goaltending from Philip Grubauer. And uh, I just don't see anybody right now that's playing as well as they are. I was thinking yesterday, it's like they want us to stop watching hockey in our house. Like Pittsburgh, got, we were we have Pittsburgh yeah. fans in our house. They're gone. Yeah. Yeah, of Toronto course, the Jets fan. are gone. We were cheering for the Flames because we you yeah. know, have some family out there. And then I was watching that Toronto game yesterday. And I was like, honestly, I think the gods, hockey gods are telling me just to walk away and stop watching hockey, period, this can year. You, can you imagine the folks at Rogers right now, though? Calgary's gone. Winnipeg's gone. If Toronto loses... No Canadian team in the second round? Oh, boy. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the rights holders uh, for uh, the NHL TV broadcast, at least, they're they're probably more nervous than the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs fans are going into that game tomorrow night. Does it make me a bad Canadian that I want the Boston Bruins to beat the Maple Leafs? No, I wouldn't be alone in saying that. So many. Who did I see yesterday? I think Phil Aubrey said, uh, "Power, I am not." Cheering for the Leafs just because the well, the last Canadian team that you know yeah, he's, he's a Montreal fan. Oh, though, I get so it. Be, That's yeah, a whole other yeah, thing. Yeah. But yeah, he was like, please do not suggest because they are Canadian quotes that yeah. I now have to suddenly cheer for them. Okay, well they'll be lost at eight thirty. The players. Yeah, eight thirty. They're uh, going to uh, begin their media availability to, All right. uh, to discuss the year that was or wasn't, as it turned out. McGarry and McNabb, Mackling, back tomorrow. We've been joking. He took the day off (laughs) because he's sad about what happened Saturday night. Jets going down 3-2 to St. Louis. And after the game, Captain Blake Wheeler did not take too kindly to this suggestion from a reporter. In the the elimination game, you guys probably expected your best, right? Um, What what happened? Please, come on, man. I mean, like, you know, this is a tough trophy to win. And... um, you know, maybe our best just wasn't good enough today, you know, and uh, their best was, was, was pretty darn good. Um, you know, in situations like that, you look for the resolve in your group. You look for how guys fight, and um, we played to the last whistle. So, you know, that's the way I see it. That was Captain Blake Wheeler after that loss, eliminating the Jets from the playoffs Saturday night. On the phone with us now is Leah Hextall with Hextall and Hockey. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Loren. Good morning, guys. How's it going? Well, we're a little bit depressed. I, I am. I'm, uh, I was sad from that loss. And, I, you know, I don't take issue with uh, the captain, you know, using an expletive because he was frustrated Saturday night. But I don't know about the answer saying maybe our best wasn't good enough. I'm, I'm not sure they played their best Saturday. What are your thoughts? I wouldn't say that this was a hockey club that played its best hockey on Saturday night. You can understand that the captain is frustrated at that time, but it's a fair and legitimate question. This was a hockey club that entered the season and was tagged by many to be a Stanley Cup favorite, and they went out in the first round. And the game in which ended their season was the game in which we saw for a lot of the second half. And it actually leaves a few more questions than it does answers. And I would speak to the point that I think this is going to be perhaps the most pivotal offseason for the Winnipeg Jets Hockey Club since they returned to the city and to the province. And that's because one of the things that Blake Wheeler said right in that comment, the resolve in this group. And that's where I have some question marks. This is a team that has tremendous talent up and down their lineup. But I would question the chemistry within the room. And I believe that this is a fair question at this time. And the moment that I turn to is in the third period when they went down three to nothing in game six. The bench was quiet. Every single player was looking to the ice, yet they still had over 15 minutes of hockey in an elimination game. There was not that one player on that bench who was able to get them going, who was looking at them saying, guys, we have time. Let's dig in. Let's go. We saw some of the resolve as the period went on, and they managed to get it to a one-goal game. But where in that moment was that leadership? And one of the things that people have to understand is that I have covered championship teams in multiple sports, and I have never seen a team win without chemistry. And people don't give this enough credit. The chemistry within your room, and I'm not talking about a room being 23 stalls. I'm talking about dinner on the road, card games, combining the generations together and putting down those walls. Also, players coming from different cultures and putting down those walls and becoming a group. You need players within to do that because that chemistry translates into the will to win for one another, which translates onto the ice. And you need to see that. And I would suggest Actually, I would say for certain that the fact they had to bring in Matt Hendricks at the trade deadline to address some of those needs would state that this offseason, yes, it's going to look very different next year for the Jets because of their contract situations, but this offseason, they need to find some players who don't just sit in the press box like Matt Hendricks and lead by example when he has the chance, but are in the room, in the game, and on the ice that can bring this talented group together so they can put it together 
to win a Stanley Cup going forward. So do they have those tools in their locker room right now and it just needs to be readjusted? Or is it really about making some trades and making some moves and finding someone else who can bring those qualities in, Leah? Well, the biggest thing too, Loren, is the fact that you have to understand that in the broadcast, Louis DeBrecht of Sportsnet mentioned a couple times that he was seeing individual play and not a team unit. And I would agree with that statement. And I think it's something that we saw throughout the year. And this isn't a hit on the Jets. It's just you have to look at the fact that you had over 10 players between unrestricted free agents and restricted free agents that were coming into the season knowing that they needed massive years because of their job situation. Think about playing an entire year not knowing what was next, knowing that if you don't perform, your family may take a hit. This is a lot of pressure on players. And again, it's not an excuse, but when you are trying to put up numbers, because unfortunately, contracts are looked at by simply offense a lot of time, face-off draws, and not really what it means to be a team and what it takes to win and adapt your game within the team situation to win. And when you're dealing with that all season, you're going to see individual type play. And I do believe that factored in to the way the Jets played this year was those individual performances. But I would say at the end of the day, this is going to be a very tough week for the Jets. Their exit interviews start this morning. They know they're saying goodbye to multiple players, not just a couple because they can't find everyone. But I would say that it is time for the Jets to address some needs within their organization to create that culture that they need in order to win while this window is still open. Leah Hextall of Hextall on Hockey joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. Leah, thank you very much. Thank you. You guys have a wonderful day. You too. In the next edition of Hextall and Hockey on the start will be tomorrow morning at 7.55. And, and those players will meet with media today at 8.30. So it's an early morning for them. They put out that release yesterday. She mentioned the exit interviews that they'll start to do with the staff and all the rest. And it'll be... No, it's not a fun day for anyone to have to clean out their, you know, head home for the for the summers, head home this early. But it, it'll be a tough, there'll be a lot of tough questions in that room today. And you can get more with Leah Hextall as well on the 680 CJOB Sports Show with Christian O'Mel. The bombings that left 290 people dead in Sri Lanka yesterday are being described by officials there as terrorist attacks carried out by religious extremists. The explosions, which rocked churches and luxury hotels, mark the deadliest violence Sri Lanka has seen since a civil war ended about a decade ago. Gashali Gamage is with the Sri Lankan Association of Manitoba. How did you hear the news of the explosions in Sri Lanka? Actually, one of my uh, friends um, called me uh, to let me know uh, that uh, there has been an incident. I have a friend group in uh, uh, school friend group that informed me about the incident. What goes through your head when you hear of something like that? I know that it's it's not a country that's immune to violence, I, and and I understand that, but it had seen relative peace in recent years. That's right. Yeah, that's what we, first thing is on why again. That was my, you know, uh, first thought. Why are we going through this again? Why why are my people are people suffering like this again? You know, they they've been through lots, uh, so it's so hard. We thought it was all finished, and uh, when we were really having, you know, the People back there were having a great time, enjoying everything. Uh, why do they have to suffer and fear again? That was my thought again. It was very, un- un- you know, it's so unfair, I feel. Did you have any family members affected or anyone within the Manitoba community? Have not, any- n- no, that's a good thing. We have not heard of anybody who was affected so far. We have a lot of people from those areas where the, you know, the uh, attacks that took place. But uh, fortunately, nobody's been uh, uh, so far, have haven't found anyone that's injured or you know killed or so so far. Yes, that's that's very good news. That's the only uh, good news here. When did you leave Sri Lanka, Gashali? I left in two thousand four. And what was the situation then when you left? Yeah, it was bad. That was one of the reasons that I left the country actually. Um, so that that was bad. So that's why we have experienced that a lot, and. Uh, when your lives are in danger, it's no fun. So we just wanted to come to a peaceful place. <laughs> what does that do to you when you live in that kind of environment? Yeah, we have to go to, you know, our day-to-day life matters no matter what. Uh, so 
And it's hard because, you know, people at one point, and you're not sure of your life, you know. You just get out of, go out of the house and you might not even come back that night. So it's just, uh, but we even kept going on, though. Yeah. And which was not, uh, uh, you know, easy. So that's why we tried to escape and came, came to a country like Canada. That is Gashali Gamage with the Sri Lankan Association of Manitoba. Loren, have you ever been to Sri Lanka? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was there in 2004. Five, right after the Boxing Day tsunami, um, and I'm sorry, maybe that was 2004, and then again the year following to go back to see how they had recovered a year post that uh, Boxing Day tsunami. But the ceasefire between the Tamil Tigers and um, Sri Lanka uh, armed forces and the separatists was signed just a couple years before I had been there, and so it still it was very much violence was still fresh in the minds of people there. And if you travel to the north, which we did, like you couldn't stray off paths. There were signs for landmines everywhere to be really well aware. Oh wow! That you know, if you just if you took two steps off, you could find yourself maimed or killed or or, or that kind of thing. There was in the northern part of Sri Lanka bullet holes in a lot of the buildings. Like it was, it's a country that really, really has seen a lot of violence. And but to have this ten, well, more than ten years of relatively relative peace, and then have these explosions break out on an Easter Sunday at churches and shopping malls is just. You could hear in her voice. She said, "We really thought we were past that, and it's hard to believe that you would ever in that and get used to that kind of environment and to have that return." I know it was super frightening for people there. Gary and McNabb, Mackling back tomorrow. Jeff Braun's here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte playing thrift shop. Because on Saturday, I went to Value Village because I went golfing yesterday at Kingswood. But I tried on my pants from last year and they don't fit anymore. I actually didn't have any pants that were suitable for a golf course that fit me. Because they're too big on you now. They're too big on me now. Let's get that. We should uh, compliment on that. Usually it's the opposite. So kudos there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, So I I didn't want to go out and spend a hundred bucks on actual golf pants. I would like to one day, but I... For something that I was gonna that I'm gonna wear maybe once at the beginning of the season, I figured I'll just go to Value Village and see if I can find something. So I found a really nice pair of pants. They were like a dark gray plaid pant. I thought this would be golfy, and I try them on, and I reach into the pocket and I feel a, like a little sort of stack of papers. I'm like this feels like what I think it feels like, and I pull it out, and sure enough. $5 bill, $10 bill, $20 bill. Like, nice. Holy smokes, $35? <laughs> yes, please. And I bought the pants because they were great. So it was a huge win. But as I left the store, big smile on my face, I thought, you know, they, there's a big sign on the side of the building that says raising, you know, mm-hmm. diabetes Canada. Should I have just turned the money over to the store? So I kind of felt guilty about it. Because I, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't walk into Silo Mission and find $10 on the ground and walk out with that. So did I Did I do, was I a no. bad guy? You supported them by buying the pants there. Case closed. Shouldn't they go through the pockets anyhow? And Yeah, don't they wash those things? Yeah. You wash them? Well, I, I washed the pants, but I think they had been washed because the bills were like kind of tattered. Yeah. So it looked like they, they had taken a beating. Uh, so I think the pants were cleaned. I guess they just didn't check them. I don't know. I mean, when they a store like that with the volume of things that they yeah. deal with, I, I, I imagine they maybe they don't check the pockets. There's part of me that, and I, I would I think I would have kept it too, but I do have this whole like karma thing going on in my mind about how if you make an effort to be like, oh, I found this money in the pocket, like, and and they would have kept it too. Like, if you had gone back to the store, they would have said, "Oh, thanks, that's really nice of you." They wouldn't have said, "Oh, go ahead and keep the money." That's that's kind of you to do it. But there is part of me that thinks by not giving it back, like, is that going to come back on you in some other way? I don't know. Yeah. So I I, I was asking people; they were suggesting I should pay it forward somehow. Yeah. Go into your closet, find thirty five dollars worth of uh, fat Brett pants that don't fit anymore, <laughs> yes. and take them to Value Village. There you go. <laughs> I'm a little reluctant, though, to, to get rid of my no. fat clothes. No, because by the time you put the weight back on, you need to wear them again. The, They'll be out of fashion. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You'll be like uh, Kelly in his 70s. Platform shoes. He had bell bottoms and platform shoes in the 1970s. Ooh, for a second there, I thought I was dressing 70s, and I thought, really? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I but you know what, Brett? Like, that was not value. The, that money did not belong to Value Village. If anything... 
it's the fellow or the person who donated the pants. It's their $35. How could you find them possibly to return the money? Yeah. Good so, point. Yeah. yeah. So I instead Finders, of... Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Yeah. I, I, I used the cash to buy the pants. And, uh, and then I got myself some rum with the rest of the money. Well, of course. <laughs> uh, but it was fun. I mean, finding mystery money is oh, always fun. Who, I was oh, just yeah. saying, who doesn't love it? You know, when you I put on a coat in the spring and you put your hand in because you haven't worn it in no. a year. And even if you pull out $2, you're super excited. This one listener's texted to say that their mom purchased a desk at Value Village, opened all the drawers, tapped on the bottom of a drawer, and there was $100. Finders keepers. It made her happy. Like tapped on the bottom, like there was money like taped hidden to the bottom money of the drawer? or taped. Maybe they meant yeah, taped. taped. There, that makes yeah. more sense. Tapped. I was thinking there was like a hidden, this mom knows all the secrets to like desks. Do you ever find money like in the couch or anything where you go, oh my, like 20 bucks? Not like that. Yeah. Just change it. Oh, I love, I love finding money. It just never happens. <laughs> <laughs> now the most money I've ever, think I've ever, I was walking down Corden one day, I found 10 bucks. I think at the bar once I found 20 Buddy of mine found 50 once. I Holy would, smokes. Yeah. I don't think I've ever found more than like a loony or a toonie on the ground. Didn't yeah. you, McNabb, didn't you like find 200 I just bucks? was saying to Brett in the commercial break that I reached into my coat last week and uh, I had been wearing it for a week and it's like a spring po- coat that I hadn't had on since last year and pulled out two $100 bills. Nice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And my husband's like, nice he's to like be how long has that money been in there? And I was like, I guess since last year. And he's like, oh, we probably could have used $200 10 different times over the last year. Like, how, how did, and then there's part of them, did you know it was there? I was like, obviously I didn't know it was there. Is it your money? I was like, who's that? Who's money? Yeah, like, like, who's going to stuff two $100 bills in there? But there was part of me that was thinking, you know, sometimes family comes and they owe you or you owe them something, and everyone's always trying to pay each other off for the hotel room that you shared or whatever. And and, uh, But the fact that there could be $200 in my life that I didn't know existed is did not make him very happy. Well, Don is texting us at 204-780-6868. Don says, bought a jacket at a yard sale, $200. Nice. In a pocket. Oh, would you go back for that? From the yard sale? No? No. No? When you donate stuff, do you check the pockets close? You should. I always, yeah. When I, I donated two giant bags to Value Village, and I'm not saying it was my $35, Brett. <laughs> but I know. I was taking stuff out of my closet and just tossing it, looking yeah. at it, tossing the bag. And after I dropped it off, I was like, I really wish I would have gone through some of those pockets because I'm liable to leave a 20 in there Which, somewhere. Which uh, Value Village? I want him to make a case that this is... Brett, you owe him, you owe him $35, Brett. You stole from Jeff Braun. That's how this story ends. What is happening in Winnipeg tonight, Loren? I think there is so many people who look forward to this day. The same way you kind of like want to spring clean your house. Well, tonight the spring cleaning starts in the city where the grit and grime left behind from a long winter will soon be swept away. It's part of the citywide spring cleanup for crews. And to tell us more, we're joined by City of Winnipeg spokesperson Ken Allen. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. And, and I think this is the time we, that people are done with the with the dirt that's out there. So what time does this get underway and what will we see uh, if we're driving down Winnipeg streets tonight? Right. Well, today is a big day in Winnipeg. We get our uh, annual uh, spring cleanup operation uh, going uh, around 10 p.m. tonight. And it, it's going to continue on for the uh, next number of weeks. Uh, while we sweep the entire street network, including, you know, main routes, bus routes and collector streets, uh, boulevards, and we're going to be cleaning up our parks as well. Well, you guys have already sort of started, right? I, I, know, I know I saw some some street cleaners out last week uh, overnight on Portage Avenue. For sure. We've been, we've been doing some preliminary cleanup activities already in the downtown area and on bridges and underpasses as well. Especially uh, since we had those whiteout parties going on, we wanted everything looking good for the the people coming down to to cheer on the Jets. Uh, but yeah, the big operation starts tonight, and uh, you know it, it is a big operation. We have you know about seven thousand kilometers of streets, sixteen hundred kilometers of walkways, and fifty bridges that need to be cleaned in in the coming days. You know, some of it's for aesthetics. I think people get frustrated when they see kind of that grime left behind. But is there a purpose to some of it, too? Does some of it have to be cleaned for other reasons, Ken? Or is it really more just about sprucing things up for the summer? Well, you know, I think it's a combination of factors. For sure, we want to we want to 
pick up uh, a lot of that winter sand that we've been putting down to improve traction, you know, for those icy conditions uh, over the winter. And, you know, there is debris that accumulates on streets as well. So we want to get that uh, out of the way. Uh, but definitely, I mean, even just for safety, get, getting the dust down and, you know, improving road conditions for motorists and cyclists and pedestrians is all very important. Yeah, I guess in terms of that safety as well, uh, if you're, I don't know, if you're out on inline skates or riding a bike and you, you go through a pile of dust, that can be, that can end up being, you know, it's it's there for traction in the winter, but it can be counterproductive in the spring and summer. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to have, uh, you know, over 300 pieces of heavy equipment out sweeping the streets and sidewalks and boulevards. And, uh, you know, we're going to be working hard to get things cleaned up as quickly as we can. Is there an issue for anyone or or what to watch for for parking when it comes to the cleanup and what signs I need to be watching for? Well, sure. You know, uh, during spring cleanup, we use uh, uh, temporary no parking signs in some areas where uh, cars parked on the street can be problematic to uh, the sweeping operation, but we don't put them on every street. So we want motorists to, you know, Keep your eyes open, be vigilant, look, keep an eye out for those uh, temporary no parking signs. And if, if there are temporary no parking signs on their street, we'd ask people to park elsewhere until we get that street completed. If people are parked in the spot where they shouldn't be, will they be towed? Well, there are, there are, uh, there are penalties for, for uh, those parked uh, in violation of the temporary no parking signs. So uh, ticket and a tow is a possibility. So again, you know, just want people to keep an eye out for those things and help us help us out move their vehicles, and it really does help us get things done more quickly and efficiently. And putting you on the spot here, do you know what the cost is of the ticket if you just leave it there and and sweep, sweepers come by and they need to ticket it or tow it? Sure, the cost of a parking ticket is a uh, hundred and fifty dollars, and the cost of a tow is a, about a hundred and twenty dollars. So it, it's not a it's not a cheap expense. So it's better just to watch for the sign and move your vehicle when you need to. If the vehicle gets towed, where does it get taken? Well, it you know, it depends. Uh, it depends when the car was parked on the street. If the car was parked on the street before the temporary no parking signs went up, then we would probably be doing a, temp- or, sorry, a courtesy tow to a nearby street. But if they parked after the signs went up, then they would be going to the towing company's compound. Before we let you go, can the sweepers start tonight? This morning, though, Arlington Bridge, it was closed briefly yesterday. It is open and good to take traffic? Yeah, no, the Arlington Bridge is uh, open again today. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, uh, reports of some unsound conditions on the bridge deck, and some asphalt had become dislodged. So, uh, you know, we closed the bridge right away for, for safety reasons, and then we rallied the crews and, and inspectors to... Uh, check things out and we were actually able to get that uh, that bridge deck repaired within about four hours and get that bridge open to traffic again for this morning's commute. All right, Ken Allen with the City of Winnipeg joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. Ken, thank you very much as always. You're welcome anytime. The citywide spring cleanup begins this evening here in Winnipeg and as well a note from the city to remind you not to put yard waste or material or debris onto the street. Sometimes you see people raking up their leaves and then just dumping it into the street. You don't want to do that as well uh, because that can plug up drains and cause problems. And it's just a mess, so don't leave that for somebody else to clean up. And in terms of the dust and dirt, I remember, yeah, I'm I'm happy to see it gone. Mm. But when I was a kid and I would get my bike out, my my old BMX bike. Oh, you liked the dirt. Oh, I loved the dirt. Yeah. I, my parents hated it because I would inevitably blow the tires. Or like it is, it is a detriment because it makes the surface slippery, right? Like your traction is it's weird when you have a bike or you're That's in white skates. Fun, though, no, I know you, you loved skid. it, but inevitably there's some neighborhood kid coming in with a scrape. Oh, that was always that was me. I would either inevitably face plant. I somehow I remember face planting on my bike. I I still don't know how I did this because I had huge scrapes and bruises on either side of my nose. Oh, like I full on face planted, but it didn't break my nose. So like that, maybe you, I'm trying to picture of you just sliding across the road on one side and then rolling over and then sliding over the other. Like how did you get both sides of your face? I don't know. There's a picture of it uh, <laughs> that my mom took, and I still to this day don't know how I didn't destroy my entire face. Just got either side. Uh, but yeah, I miss having a BMX.
Now I kind of want to get a BMX. You, have, you should have spent the $35 on a used BMX. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to owe Jeff Braun that money now anyway. So There is no way those were Jeff Braun's pants. You don't know that. No way. Well, they would have to have been a little bit older, I think. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> but in the meantime, we want to start this hour. For the fourth time in five months, a Winnipeg cafe was the target of a hate crime. Except this most recent attacks on Bermax Cafe and Bistro on Cordon also sent one of the staff members to hospital. It occurred last Thursday, which was also the eve of the Jewish celebration of Passover. And the restaurant wasn't just vandalized, as you mentioned. One of the staff was assaulted. Val Jarneski is the executive director of the Jewish Heritage Centre of Western Canada and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Bell. Good morning. I know one of the big concerns in hearing this is that there's a worry that anti-Semitism and hate crimes are on the rise. Can you explain this a bit further for us? Well, certainly anti-Semitism worldwide has been on the rise in recent years. And of course, this brings it right to our own backyard. There there have been, as you mentioned, several incidents at Burmax. And um, this time with a, a physical assault on an employee, it's, it's, it's really quite frightening and of concern. We're becoming more tolerant in many ways in society, yet in many respects that we've seen here, less tolerant uh, when it comes to hatred like this. What do you think is fueling that? It's really a worldwide movement, uh, resurgence worldwide. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of this uh, anywhere from from Europe, where there has there have been many, many hate crimes uh, against the Jewish community, including including murder. And then, of course, uh, a couple of years ago in the United States with slogans like Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville. What when, when we hear things like this, when we see things like this, I saw all sorts of comments on social media, people saying, this is despicable, Winnipeg, you know, we can do better than this. But what, what can we do? What should we be doing to counter these sorts of acts, Bell? I think it's important for everyone, first of all, to be very, to st- stand up very strongly against hatred of any kind. Um, uh, you know, another example, of course, is what we, what happened, uh, in Sri Lanka. Um, we need to stand together, but also we need to educate. We need to educate beginning in, in school against racism of all kinds, including anti-Semitism, and people need to understand exactly what anti-Semitism is and also what it isn't. Why do so many people hate Jewish people? <laughs> That's a million-dollar question. Um, anti-Semitism, unfortunately, has existed from uh, for for thousands of years, even before uh, Christianity, and we have uh, been an easy target. We Jews, you know, the Jewish religion is ancient. We've maintained our beliefs, and unfortunately, we have always often been the target of of hate, of, of all kinds of lies uh, about Jews. And uh, I think it's important that we educate people here, uh, even on the history of anti-Semitism in Canada. And Winnipeg, for instance, was the last city across Canada to end its discriminatory practices um, if in uh, membership in private clubs and, of course, There were areas of Winnipeg where Jews were not welcome. It's not that long ago, and we need to be aware of this, and we need to work together to counter this. I'm not sure if you know the owners of Burmax Cafe or the people there, but uh, if you do, do you have any sense of just what what the feeling is there or even just within the community of something like this? It's not just graffiti. It's going out of their way to hurt Mm -hmm. someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not yet been in touch with uh, with the owner of the cafe, uh, be, mostly because of the Jewish holiday that took mm-hmm. place right after. And that's another uh, layer to this, you know, that this took place right before the Jewish holiday, where over the course of history, uh, many attacks have taken place against Jews. And then there was the uh, coinciding of, of Good Friday. And Good Friday, historically, was a day where Jews were attacked and even killed in pogroms. Um, so the family would not uh, have, uh, the family is an observant family, and uh, they would not have been in touch with anyone during that time. But I can only imagine the terrible feeling that it must be to have your place of business attacked 
only because of your religious beliefs. And I might say that, um, you know, while this is a, a kosher restaurant, many times when I have been in there, there have been members of the Muslim community who have taken advantage of the fact that our dietary laws are similar to theirs, and so it would make it a place where it would be appropriate for them to, to eat. Before we let you go, Belle, I know there's been a gathering, a vigil being planned for Thursday, an interfaith vigil. What's the importance of that in your mind? I think it's, I, I really welcome this. I'm helping to organize this with Reverend Lorraine Mackenzie Shepherd. I think it's very important to see that there are other communities out there who really care about what happened, who want to express their support to our community, rather than our own community uh, holding this kind of vigil. So I'm very grateful, and the fact that people from many different faiths will be participating in this event. Where is the event? It's at Westworth uh, United Church, which is located on Grosvenor uh, between Lanark and Renfrew at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday. Bell Jarneski, Executive Director of the Jewish Heritage Centre of Western Canada, joining us live on CJOB. Bell, thank you for this. Thank you. My favourite part of it, not being winter anymore, has arrived. Golf season. Many courses are now open for business or will be open soon. And one of those courses opening soon inside the city limits is actually not too far from me, Loren, because I recently moved Mm, to St. Boniface, where the St. Boniface Golf Club is a hop, skip and a jump away at 100 Uville Street. So we thought we'd reach out to the director of golf operations at St. Boniface. Steve Wood joins us now on 680 CJOB. Steve, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you. So how did the course hold over the winter? Uh, very well, actually. Uh, the greens look fantastic. We peeled the tarps off on uh, Thursday, and they look great. Ah, that's the secret. I should have put a tarp on my lawn. <laughs> because it always helps. Mine didn't hold up. We were talking to the city this morning about, you know, cleaning up after winter and getting things spruced up for spring. What what goes into getting the golf course ready for people to hit the links? Well, getting it ready is, uh, is kind of just the nature of the business. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, cutting the greens, uh, cleaning up, a lot of, uh, you know, getting the car pass ready, getting the basic stuff like garbage cans and hole signs and all that stuff sort of ready for, uh, for the golfers to come out and start to, start to play. So. so when you put the tarps over the greens, uh, like when do, you, when do you do that? Well, that's usually done right at the tail end of the season. They uh, – Right as we're closing, we basically put one final kind of fungicide spray down and then cover the tar- cover the greens with a tarp, which gives them a little bit of insulation over the winter, basically, just in case we don't have much snow coverage, right? And so you're ready to open when? What's opening day? Thursday morning. Oh, exciting. So is, yeah. do you have the same feeling Brett has? He's been kind of giddy for the past couple of weeks. I, I don't know if that's the right word, oh, but, yeah. but he's, yeah, he's itching know, this- to go. This time of year, you know, especially after the Masters that just happened, everybody gets excited. It's almost the unofficial start of the golf season, regardless of whether the golf courses are open or not. And uh, after this year's Masters, people seem to be even more excited. So. Well, and on the subject of Tiger Woods winning the Masters, you know, his effect on the game over the last two decades has been immeasurable. Now that he's the champ again, do you think that will regenerate some uh, some more interest in the game? I think that what it does is it gets everybody excited. Um, and obviously the fact that Tiger won, whether you're a fan or not, I mean, it's probably the greatest story in, or comeback story in sports. But, uh, you know, I, I think having Tiger there, you know, I've been to PGA events where Tiger's there and Tiger's not there. And the buzz when he's there is, as you said, Brett, immeasurable. You can't even, can't even fathom how, how big of an impact he has on the game. So if I'm someone sitting out there and I've been thinking about getting into golf, but I haven't really done much of it, what's, what do you suggest I do? Should it be lessons? Should it be having a personal uh, lesson or trainer for a little bit? Like, what would you recommend? Well, you know what? Uh, everybody's a little bit different. Uh, some people like to do it in a bit of a group setting, so it's a little more fun. Um, I think every every and any golf course you go to that's, that's going to have some beginners, uh, you know, lessons or, or, or clinics for people to get involved. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of good programs out there that have like a get golf get get golf ready is one that uh, a lot of courses offer, and it's basically an intro uh, basics of, of golf, right? Where it just literally takes them from the parking lot and how to kind of meld them into golf without feeling foolish. And and you, you know, you, you, a lot of people have that kind of feeling, and when they start something new, this takes them right in how to check in, where to go. 
Uh, and then it also takes them a part of the golf swing and, and gets them involved that way too. So, Is there a lesson on temper control? Because I would need that. Well, that's a, that's a, there's some psychologists that probably help you out there. But. Sending me right to the dock. I like it. Okay. Yeah. Well, and you like, I, I still, I've been playing golf for 15 years and I'm still terrible at it. My first tee shot yesterday, uh, I think it went like 10 yards. I, I just sort of got those first tee jitters. But so for, what about for people who have been playing for a long time? They're not new to the game. They, they've been playing for a while, uh, but they, the develop bad habits is getting lessons. Can that help somebody forget those habits? Absolutely. Well, forget them. No, but uh, they're, they're always ingrained in your brain. I think a little bit, but uh, you know, I think if you look at the best players in the world, they all have coaches and, and swing doctors that they go to um, and they do it for a reason. So I think uh, for the average player, if the average player took that as a, as a sign, they should probably get some uh, instruction as well. So never hurts. So on your website, com, it says the private club experience without the private club price. What does that mean? Well, it's just a little more reasonable. Um, you know, our pricing structure is uh, with the understanding that we have a very community-based. Uh, so our, our green fees and our, our, our public play fees and, and even our memberships are pretty reasonably priced as well. So it's just we try to keep it as, as economical as possible. No, the the course as well. It's the so 100 Uville Street, um, and it's funny. Like I, I can't even picture where it is. Like, and I live in Saint Boniface. So, how does if well, I'm where, how do I get there if I'm going up Provence, for example? If you're going up Provence, uh, turn you would go uh, south on Desmirons, and uh, you would actually turn uh, left on Saint Luke, which would take you drive you right into our parking lot. Uh, if you're coming up Marion. Uh, we're basically, uh, the turnoff for Uville is right, almost right across the street from the Marion Hotel. So if you're uh, looking for landmarks, that would probably be the best one. Okay, well, I'm going to have to come check it out uh, this do. this season, yeah, because you're not that far. And uh, I've heard great things about the St. Boniface Golf Club. So thank you yeah, for joining thank- us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Steve Wood is the director of golf operations at St. Boniface Golf Club. And again, the website, stbonifacegolfclub.com. They are open on Thursday. I'm trying to remember why, because I'm not a golfer, but I've also, I have been there for some reason, and it is a really pretty course. All the city courses are nice because they're tucked. tucked all of a sudden, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere and you're in the city. Yeah, like that's the thing about this course is uh, you, I've, I've I'm trying to picture where is the yeah. space no, for a golf course. It's a huge space, actually. It's like Uville and, and Archibald, and uh, it's a giant green space, and it's nice and quiet in there and shady, and it's really pretty. Yeah, and uh, my dad, uh, when he used to golf at Windsor Park years back, uh, and I don't say that in a bad way, like, so many years ago because my dad's so old. <laughs> Just because it's been a while. But yeah. they, they, they basically, they're, they're across, like there's a fence that used to separate them because they're St. Boniface and Windsor Park are right beside each other. So yeah, I got to check out St. Boniface this year. Wait, but, and is is Windsor Park the same as Niagara? Or is there Niagara a whole separate one then? Niagara is a separate one too. So there's like too. three right there in a row. Yeah, they're, they're all pretty much close you together. You should do so. a full day, like a 6 a.m. to midnight. You know, could you hit? Could you fit three golf courses in a day? Oh, I, I know some. Well, three courses. Well, in that in that sure range, you could. Yeah. they're close to each other. I challenge you for this. Oh, I have no interest. It was a couple of buddies <laughs> in mine. They they actually they it was did just a hard no. They did the golf Iditarod as they called it at a course called Sandy Hook. Okay, yeah, uh, out sort of near Winnipeg Beach, and they played. I think. Four rounds in a day. Oh, that's a lot. Walking, and uh, they wanted to prove they were still young lions. And uh, I said, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, if you're looking for a unique vacation idea, and you're a fan of the biggest show on TV, we've got something for you here. When I was a child, my brother would tell me a bedtime story about the man who murdered our father. About all the things we would do to that man. He never should have trusted Cersei. You never should have either. Death. She's got many faces. I look forward to seeing this one. How long do we have? Before the sun comes up tomorrow. Game of Thrones, the eighth and final season is here. Episode two aired last night on HBO. 
And one of the many cool things about Game of Thrones, and Loren, I know you don't watch the show. No, but you do. I love it, and uh, I haven't actually watched last night's so episode So don't yet. text in with anything anyone. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't have even said no, it. No, I'm thinking that now, too. I should yeah. close your windows. Yeah, I might okay. just close the text line here. But the, one of the cool things about Game of Thrones is its locations. It's filmed all over the world in some incredibly gorgeous spots. And Travel Zoo has curated a list of must-see destinations that fans of the series should visit. So Travel Zoo's resident travel expert and Game of Thrones fan, Susan Cato, joins us now on 680 CJOB. Susan, good morning to you. Good morning. First of all, did you watch last night's episode yet? Um, I am not going to give any spoilers at all, knowing now that you have not seen it, so don't even ask. But did you watch it? I started to watch it, but you know, between Easter and the Leafs game, yeah. I think a lot of people are in the same position. We're waiting. We're going to watch it tonight and uh, and really sit down and enjoy it, you know? Well, I walked in and told Brett nine people died on the show last <laughs> night. I don't even know if there are nine people in the show, but I was like, nine people died on Game of Thrones! That's that's, you know, that's always that's entirely plausible and possible, so I'm going to have to wait to see and do it. I'll do a head count at the end of the show, Loren. But, so, Susan, this list that you've compiled here have you, first of all, have you visited, have you personally been to any of these locations yet? Oh, yes. I've been to Northern Ireland, and I highly recommend it. It's really incredible. And, um, you know, that is really the heart of where um, Game of Thrones is made. The studios uh, where it's filmed, any studio shots are, are done out of Northern Ireland, out of Belfast. And and then, of course, a lot of the scenery. And Northern Ireland just has this incredible, rugged um, landscape, you know, between the sort of coastlines and mountains and just um, uh, the King's Road, which appears many, many times, you know, the stretches from Castle Black to King's Landing. Every, it's like the super highway of Game of Thrones. That is just about an hour outside of um, Belfast. And, uh, and Travel Zoo has, you know, trips that will take you all through uh, Northern Ireland as well, which so you could actually see many of the sites and just recognize places, plus hotels in Belfast where you could, you know, base yourself uh, if you wanted to do a Game of Thrones uh, trip to Ireland. So that would be the sort of the number one location in the sense that it would have the most spots where you could say, oh, yeah, that was the scene of this from whatever season. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. We've got, yeah, I've, I think, um, you know, three or four amazing, really, like, uh, Castle Ward, uh, Winterfell, that's all around um, Belfast. You can just kind of go around and see that. And, um, you know, but there are so many places. I hate to just pick one. Um, that's the one I've been to. Um, but another place... Croatia is just, if you go to Dubrovnik, uh, it's a UNESCO-protected medieval city, and it's, you know, it, it is King's Landing, basically. It's been a star of Game of Thrones since the very beginning, and it's where uh, Cersei did her walk of shame in season five. Um, so, you know, we've got recommendations on the TravelZoo website, travelzoo.ca, about, like, what to do once you're there, because, you know, you're going to want to just explore this amazing place. There's, you know, um, the Gardens of the Red Keep. That's all filmed right out of uh, like the King's Landing Gardens. That's right in Croatia and all kinds of different sites there. So I think Croatia is a real, um, you know, top draw for the Game of Thrones fan. Well, and it turns out our, our colleague, Greg Mackling, is on his way to Croatia in just a couple of weeks to mm. Croatia and the Adriatic coast. So maybe we'll give him a list of things to check mm-hmm. out uh, while he's mm-hmm. doing that. So we've got Northern Ireland, Croatia, and then next I see is a place I would love to check out is Iceland. Oh, wow. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Iceland? So in season seven, you know, that Arrowhead Mountain that uh, that they were looking for and looking for and looking for, the Army of the Dead's headquarters, yep. near a mountain that looks like an arrowhead. That's a real mountain uh, in, um, okay, I'm going to massacre the pronunciation, but Kirkjufell, Iceland. Um, so you can actually go and see that. It's actually one of the most photographed spots in Iceland, and it's a wonderful place to view the Northern Lights. So you have more, more reasons than just Game of Thrones to go there. And then there's um, Beyond the Wall. Basically, so many of these sites are on um, Europe's largest glacier. Again, excuse my pronunciation, but that Nojkol. Um, and that's located just east of Reykjavik. And um, so, this, you know, you've got these ice plains and these mountain peaks and, like, glacial lagoons. So if you want to go kind of beyond the wall without actually worrying about getting, you know, killed by the Army of the Dead, uh, I would recommend a nice trip to Iceland. So that's the kind of more nature scenes um, that mm-hmm. would be featured in the show. But there's also, uh, like, looking at this list of places you can go, like, 
Malta uh, mm-hmm. in the sense of the walls and the old sort of castles or what, I don't know even what, fort, I think maybe it might have been at one time. But you would mm-hmm. really feel like you were stepping back in time in many of these places. Tell us a bit oh, about yeah, Malta. Yeah, you have kind of like like this, you know, Manuel Island, Fort Manuel in Malta. It's like a star-shaped, you know, uh, fortification. And um, you know, this is where uh, Ned Stark was executed in season one. I hope that's not a spoiler. If you haven't watched season one, you're really I haven't not a fan. watched any of it, so thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, guys. Um, but um, it also there's also uh, places the San Anton. San Anton Palace. It's actually the official resident of residence of the president of Malta, and it stands in for the Red Keep, um, you know, home to the royal family um, of King's Landing, home to the Iron Throne. And, you know, it, it's quite a stunning place to visit. So, um, again, Malta, it's not a place that's like first on a lot of people's lists, but, you know, at Travel Zoo, we're all about kind of finding these unusual spots for you to visit, and I would definitely put Malta on that list. Are people actually coming to you and saying, like, I love this show so much, I'd like to hit up some of these spots or is it a bit more like oh i've always wanted to go to this country oh cool by the way i can go see these um game of thrones scenes well actually game of thrones tourism is really big and especially now that the show is wrapping up a lot of these places that maybe weren't even super accessible before they're they're recognizing the fact that okay you know we used to have the crews in we used to have the cast you know now we're going to have the fans so people are really making an effort to welcome game of thrones fans and um and game of thrones tourism so in really any of the places that we are talking about at travel zoo you you can get advice on our website and once you're actually there you'll have no trouble finding game of thrones oriented tours and what is that website susan it is travelzoo.ca, and I have a, we have a blog there that's 25 of places, actual filming sites. With You'll love it because it's pictures of the actual scene from Game of Thrones and then pictures of what the place looks like in real life. Um, so it's, it's a real treat to um, envision putting yourself into these places that you've you know, come to love on this show for so many years. Susan Caddo, Game of Thrones fan and Travel Zoo's resident travel expert on Game of Thrones tourism ideas. If you're looking for a unique vacation that combines travel with your beloved TV show. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us about this. This is great. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And right now we want to talk about something that affects one in six Canadian couples. Yeah, it's a pretty big number when you stop and think about it. I think when you were, before we went to commercial, Brett, you thought, I, I didn't know it was that yeah. big of an issue for that many Canadians, and it really is, and that's infertility. And John Waldman has his own story, you and your wife, of your own journey to mm-hmm. uh, success, but a struggle as well. And he's in studio with us now. Thanks for being here, John. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about your daughter first. That was a yeah. six-year journey uh, to bring Kaya to the world. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a trial and tribulation time in our lives, uh, going through everything from a miscarriage to failed procedures in Winnipeg and ultimately uh, going halfway across the country to Victoria, uh, spending a month out there to go through IVF and to eventually come back uh, pregnant. Why did you have to go to Victoria? Uh, For us, at the time, Heartland was very limited in its services. And when we spoke with the doctor, uh, Dr. Stephen Hudson out in Victoria, um, they were, they had a little bit of a different philosophy than what's, than what was here. And, we, he was able to do a little bit more of a whole body look and found that found what was able to pinpoint what our trouble was, assign us a different drug protocol than what was going to be available in Winnipeg, and ultimately uh, did the IVF out there. How hard is that process to know that there's something that's not quite working right when you're struggling to get pregnant, and then and then having someone tell you, okay, this is what it is. Is there relief at least with that, or is it a bit of heartbreak because then you now know you'll have to do an extra layer of things if you really want to go through with uh, getting pregnant? There is a certainly that extra layer of relief that comes with it because for a long time it was unexplained infertility and that's sort of the default in a way unless there's something that's a fertility specialist or a doctor can uh, pinpoint right off the bat. So for us, it was that feeling of, okay, now we know a direction that we're going in. We know that we're going to be having to take this much time away. You know, as there's still the, certainly the, the trials that come with it, you know, of office for that long and being able to take that journey as long as we did. But it was, once we had that direction and you have that way of knowing a path to at least the best chance of success, the better off you're feeling. 
So it's Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. It's from today through Saturday, April 28th. Why do we need such a week? Uh, the reality is, is that there are still a lot of people that in the public that don't know that there is um, that high a ratio of infertility that is one in six Canadian couples and individuals. Um, and along with that, the people that are suffering don't always know what resources are out there. So... Part of the mission for Fertility Matters Canada is to show that, yes, there are these support networks. In Winnipeg, there's a a monthly support group that meets in person, and there are Facebook groups, extremely private, uh, that provide all the information and support and resources that you would need. Um, And really, every time that I talk, there's somebody else that comes out with their story. And to me, it's heartwarming when I can when I can give a little bit of that relief or as I've had this year, a couple of the uh, the people that I met with are now pregnant and are, have been able to better deal with the road after going through seeing what happens during, say, W and having the opportunity to really expose themselves a little bit better and be able to find the, the, their path. You mentioned on your own journey that you know you have to take time off of work. Uh, there's there's the the time loss in terms of the efforts that are to to try to have success with fertility and pregnancy, and then there's just the cost on mm-hmm. its own. Have we made any changes in Manitoba in recent years in terms of what is or is not covered if you are someone seeking IVF, for example? Yeah, the what there is, and just uh, as a background, IVF as is the most not necessarily the most common procedure, but it's the fall the one that sort of the benchmark procedure that a lot of people look at is anywhere between ten dollars and $15,000 uh, per shot. And that's when they harvest your egg and then in a separate... Per- fertilize outside the proverbial test tube baby. And then put it back yeah. in once yeah. there's success. Okay. Yeah. So what you're looking at um, in Manitoba is that there is a tax credit available. Uh, however, that is limited to if you have any procedures done or have any uh, protocols done in Manitoba. So for us doing it in Victoria, we weren't eligible for that credit. Uh, this is different than what there is in Ontario, for example, where the government pays for your first round of IVF, no questions asked. Um, what else is is part of the equation is that a number of health insurance policies either have coverage available for drugs or don't. Uh, the way that that we had it was that our the drug protocol that I – or the um, – the health package that I had through my office was that uh, if it wasn't stated explicitly that it wasn't uh, for infertility or other purposes, then we were eligible. So we were able to knock about $4,000 off of our the cost for our procedure. Uh, but there are, as I said, a number of uh, packages that do not um, – that explicitly state that you cannot use this for infertility purposes. So it's something to be very mindful of and it's something that I would highly encourage anybody who is looking at IVF or other procedures to speak uh, not only – to not only look at their package but to speak with their representatives to see what can be done. John Waldman is our guest talking about Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. And John, I'm curious to know, do you ever – Give it any sort of negative feedback from people who say like, well, why should this be covered? Why should the government cover this? If you want to have kids, why should I have to pay for that? There is uh, some of that feedback. I haven't received it directly, but there are those people who will say that having kids is an option. You can always adopt or you can be the, the happy uncle and aunt and that kind of thing. But really, when you're looking at this, I mean, if you want to go that way, you can talk in about the, the biblically uh, my, uh, mandates to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, but you're also looking at what is our natural feeling and our natural rights, which is to have children should you choose to. So when you look at that, and it was just, it was described to me, perfectly by somebody uh, when we're talking about the fundraising aspect. It's the matter of if somebody has, you know, heart conditions or if they have cancer or something like that, you're talking about supporting somebody um, and fighting off death. In this case, you're fighting for life. You're fighting for the opportunity to have that continuation, that daughter, son, offspring, to be able to have that peace that, that comes so naturally to everybody else that really that is a right no matter what way you slice it, whether and it's your right to choose to or choose not to, but you should have everybody should have the opportunity to make that decision, not have a decision forced upon you by the way that your body works. You've been using the we've been using the number one in six Canadians struggle with infertility. Is that growing? Is that is it becoming a bigger problem for uh, couples and and women? It has become a, a larger number over the last couple of decades. Um, there's nothing that is 
100% attributable. Um, some people will say it's because uh, some people are choosing later in life to have to try to have kids based on career, based on finding the right partner and such. Um, other thoughts are that there's environmental factors, but you can't attribute it to one thing. Um, but certainly what's also happening is there's a greater, um, I guess, awareness of it in general, not only through places like Fertility Matters Canada talking about it, but also the spread in media. I mean, we see a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies now with those storylines that are that involve it. So there's a lot more public awareness of it uh, versus what there was in the 80s and 90s. How much of a of an effect does it have on a couple that has tried to have a child and whether it's a miscarriage or just it just doesn't seem to happen because I know people mm-hmm. who have had multiple miscarriages before they were ultimately successful but that journey sort of it 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 was overwhelming for them mm-hmm. and demoralizing uh, yeah. sometimes too it's something you want so bad and you can't when you can't figure it out or even when a doctor comes and says we think we can do it then you have all this hope in this $15,000 package so to speak yeah. right i mean what was how it's a great question from Brett in terms of what it does to a marriage. It really impacts so many areas. You start on the the very surface. You're looking at a big financial stake. So you're looking at how do you how do you resort your financial priorities? And for a lot of people, it's just not financially feasible, which is very unfortunate. And this is where you start to look at what are the solutions that government could be could be offering. But even before that, you're looking at emotional t- uh, ties, and you're looking at what does the strain do physically for, for primarily for the female because they go undergo mm-hmm. more procedures than the guy does. Um, but you're looking at so many of so much of that. You're looking at the emotional strains, especially as you start to have those difficult conversations of how much are we willing to do and how far are we willing to go? Um, you're looking at th- the struggles both individually, but also as a couple, because it becomes admittedly hard when your friends are around you are having kids so easily or you're getting invited to yet another baby shower or a birthday or in Judaism a bris or a or a christening or things like that so you're looking at all of these different things and wondering how the heck can we go through this when we're we want to be having these things so bad ourselves so there's a lot of strife that you go through and there it impacts and changes you forever um for some couples it's just too much to bear but for a lot of couples and for myself and my wife it strengthens you it brings you so much closer together because you're having this major mental physical emotional impact and it does bring you so much closer because you feel that sense of a team that you're going together forward on this so how do we get involved and if somebody listening right now wants to get involved in canadian and infertility awareness week what can they do so there's a couple ways uh first of all uh is to go to fertilitymatters.ca where we're listing the various webinars that we're going to be having through Facebook Live. Uh, we have a number of, uh, of professionals, of patients that are uh, discussing their store, their stories and are providing advice on how they can help. Uh, we're also sharing stories uh, through the hashtag one in six uh, throughout social media and through various platforms. And along with that, uh, Fertility Matters Canada is an organization that is nonprofit and we are seeking uh, public support uh, to be able to provide things like the support groups locally, as well as some of the advocacy efforts that we do. So all donations are greatly appreciated. John Waldman joining us to talk about Canadian Infertility Awareness Week, which once again has begun today and goes through Saturday, April 28th. John, thank you very much for coming to tell us your story and to tell us about this. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. 